Welcome to the x podcast, Target Cancer. This is a podcast about how health technology is revolutionizing care for cancer patients. Uh, my name is Mika Newton. I'm the CEO of x I'm here today with Melanie Palomares. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So uh, just before the show, we were talking, you are a preventional oncologist. Did I get that Preventive correct? oncologist. Preventive yes. oncologist. Okay. I have to ask you, what, what is a preventive oncologist? Can you explain sure. the two? Sure. So I'm a medical oncologist with additional training in epidemiology and cancer genetics. A lot of people think that, actually it's true, that genetics causes it's, it plays a big part in the development of cancer. Um, however, only 5 to 10% of them are actually hereditary. And otherwise, uh, a lot of the genetic errors are things we acquire after we're born due to exposures that we have, and that's where the epidemiology comes in. That's the uh, environmental and lifestyle risk factors. And so I um, trained in in all three of those areas uh, for the purpose of focusing on the prevention of cancer. So I want to make sure I heard that right. Only 5 to 10% of my cancer risk comes from my genes. The rest of it is what happened to me over my life. Is that correct? Or what I was exposed to in terms of my environment? Yes. So uh, thank you for making me clarify. Uh, Five to 10% is a population estimate. So of all the people in the world, five to 10% of those who develop cancer are due to a genetic error they inherited. But actually all cancer is genetic. Mm -hmm. It's just the rest are due to acquired Acquired mutations. So um, as a patient, then, if I'm thinking about when am I going to see a preventive oncologist, when and where do I interact with a preventive oncologist? What what sort of patients are the ones that, that you serve? Sure. So currently, um, most of the time, there are individuals that either have developed cancer at a young age and or they have a family history of cancer Right now, a lot of the care is focused on the individual that already had cancer. I think that's a problem with our system. Um, To really prevent, we need to be talking to people who don't have cancer yet or don't even have necessarily a precancer yet, but actually just knew that, oh, I have a family history of cancer, or even better than that, because only 5 to 10% are hereditary, I have some other risk factors, whether that's lifestyle risk factors or those other things. So my dream is that we would actually be um, working, there would be an interface between oncologist and primary care Mm -hmm. and the wellness um, community. That's wonderful. That makes a lot of sense to me. In today's world, when you're working with, let's say, a patient who has cancer, it reminds me of a discussion I had with someone about thinking about every patient and the risk that they have of, of um, a recurrence uh, of disease or progression of their disease as being somewhere in this like statistical curve, right? There's some likelihood of it happening. Sure. And this person was explaining to me that it's really hard to tell what you, where you are because each one of us is so different. Right. But he was explaining uh, to me the idea that what you really wanted to do was to end up in one of the tails, actually the tail that's that's doing well. Yes. And it didn't matter where you were when you started as long as everything you did kind of took a step in that direction. Is that kind of the philosophy here of like every – and he was talking about food and wellness and exercise. Um, is that – 
Yes, that's that's what I envision. Certainly, because of the oncology training, it's a little bit easier to think about how with clinical trials, we had talked about that, you actually get data mm-hmm. that you can say, oh, there's this risk of recurrence or progression, as you said. Um, and when you do X, Y, or Z intervention, that's associated with a certain amount of decrease in that risk. Um, and so that's something we, we understand really well for because of the clinical trials that have been done with cancer treatments. And my hope is that we actually generate that data because we have, for instance, a lot of that data starts in the metastatic setting, mm-hmm. and then we bring it forward into the adjuvant setting, which is kind of like secondary prevention, right? And then we had some prevention trials where healthy people were assigned to clinical trials of not very toxic medications, and that developed some data that that was able to show a certain amount of risk reduction mm-hmm. um, at a very large expense. And um, a lot of the drug companies didn't feel very comfortable funding those uh, studies because they were expensive. And by the time they read out, their drug was coming off of patent. Mm-hmm. And so where what you just said is the kind of the data that we need. And maybe that's the epidemiologists that then come to doing population-based studies and we mm-hmm. say, okay, if you do this much exercise, I mean, we have this data. Um, so, so it's standardizing it, though, because everyone has a different type of exercise. But let's say they have the MET system where they mm-hmm. figure out how, what the intensity is and how frequent and often they do it, you know, over a week's time, and they try to standardize that, and they say, okay, that seems to decrease risk by so much. And so, again, nutrition is extremely complex, and so there, I know some individuals at the Fred Hutch we talked about, that's where I, I was early in my career, that uh, did feeding studies. But those are small studies, and it's hard to extrapolate to a population of people um, there are other studies that look at populations and migration of populations that take on a Western diet or something mm-hmm. like that. And so we are able to say very general things, like a high-fat diet decreases the risk of cancer by X amount. But again, those are large studies. They show very different d- results in different populations, and so it's hard to standardize across. But my dream is that we could figure out how to do that, maybe with a tool like you're working on. All of the data would be, yeah, certainly it seems like we were missing or missing a lot of the data. So I, I think of the things that I think many of us have heard, like I hear it on the just, you know, NPR or on the news, which is, you know, eating a lot of red meat can cause uh, cancer. Or uh, what was the one I heard that I, I refuse to believe, whether it's true or not, that drinking coffee is going to be bad for me um, or, or so on and so forth. So it sounds like there's some data around these. In terms of the actual interventions that are being used in preventive oncology today, mm-hmm. which are the kind of evidence-based ones? So if someone is a cancer patient, what are the prevention, uh, what are the tools in the toolbox for prevention then? Uh, yeah, how so do they get applied? Sure, the, the ones with the strongest evidence are in the adjuvant setting. So again, we're looking at prevention of recurrence. Mm-hmm. For primary prevention, there are a couple of medications that are used for people that meet a certain level of risk for breast cancer mm-hmm. and a couple of other medications for a certain level of risk for prostate cancer. And so we have clinical trial data for that. 
Um, other than that, we have a lot of population-based data that talk about generalities, as I said, avoid a high-fat diet, too much red meat, processed foods, um, but they're very generalized because it's hard to standardize across all those different studies. Do we understand, um, when I think about uh, uh, preventive oncology, I think about stories that I've heard from patients um, and from advocacy groups in particular, where I've heard about um, higher levels of incidence, for instance, things in like early onset colon cancer and younger people getting colon cancer. And I haven't gone and dug into all the data yet, but this is something I've just started hearing about on a really frequent basis. Do you, do you, are you following that kind of trend and what's happening there and what we do or don't understand? Yes, yeah, sure. So I've been doing this for a couple of decades. And so um, most of my focus is on the high risk group um, because they're, they're usually more motivated. And if you're talking about either medication or surgical intervention, it's sort of more worth the risk, mm -hmm. I guess. So, for instance, in, in colorectal cancer, um, some of the risk factors that have a very high risk are usually the ones that are hereditary. Um, and, and so that there's cer certain syndromes like Lynch syndrome mm -hmm. or uh, familial adenomatous polyposis and things like that. And so those individuals, often we're talking about anything from... Uh, preventive surgery mm -hmm. to taking aspirin or some other inter uh, low to no, low toxicity medication. More frequent screenings, all, all of this well, sort of thing. Well, certainly the more frequent screenings. Interesting. But, you know, screening, it, that's great because you find things early and then um, can intervene early where it's still curable, but it's not totally primary prevention, which is why I was saying the other things. Interesting. So um, I want to talk a little bit, in a few minutes, we were talking earlier about residual disease and like how is my therapy going and how does that, that work. But before we do, I just, how do you become and train to be a preventive oncologist? Um, it, it just maybe take us a little bit through your history. You're telling me some of the institutions you worked at and yeah. the great people you worked with. Like how, how do you get into this field? Yeah, that, that's a great question because there is no training program um, well, I should say there is one at the NCI that was started after I was at the point that I was doing my training, or actually I was in the middle of it. Um, but even that program is more geared toward research rather than to clinical care. And so I kind of just put it together. I was already in oncology training at the time and um, pursued a public health degree, particularly in epidemiology. And then as I was learning more about high-risk populations, that naturally took me to medical genetics. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's how I did it. I, I mean, I had to continually learn since then, but I haven't specifically gone through any medical trainings, I should say. I have done some things. Um, for instance, uh, there's something called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine mm -hmm. Interesting. and uh, that I became affiliated with. And um, I've also done some training in, in transformational health coaching because getting people to change behaviors is no small thing. Um, but those are not really, well, the ACLM is, but the other thing is not really a medical training. It's, right. That's where the interface with the wellness community comes in. So it just in. strikes me, you've trained as an oncologist, you did train, you're, you're an oncologist, yes. right? But then prevention, right, and... and Seems like such an important thing, right? Like uh, that sounds a lot. You know, I'd rather prevent cancer than have it. Um, Definitely. So w why the lack of focus is, or maybe lack of focus is the wrong word. W why haven't 
there have been more programs? What's what's been missing um, from that? Is it funding? Is it interest? Like what what's driven need? I mean, the need is. You know, that apparent. is such a good question. So there are some programs, but they're within not definitely not in the oncology group. Unfortunately, I can actually share early in my career um, some some individuals saying to me like mentor level saying to me why do you want to do this? Leaves this for the primary care physicians. But I was just driven. And why that was, I don't know if it was the six months at the Fred Hutch of taking care of very sick bone marrow transplant patients that I just sort of said, this kind of sucks. <laughs> and, and then kind of uh, interacting with people in the public health sphere, it just got me to thinking, this is what I want to do. Oh, and then I heard a, a, a lecture. From, we had a visiting professor from the National Cancer Institute come in that gave a lecture on chemo prevention, and that's what, that's what clinched it for me. I was like, oh, I can use my clinical trial training mm -hmm. to think about prevention. So that was what definitely pushed me in that area. But why aren't there more? That's such a good question. And so there is something called cancer epidemiology as a subset of epidemiology. Um, there's definitely an area of cancer genetic, genetics within medical genetics. Um, but there hasn't been anything in oncology. So, um, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe that's something I need to work on. Oh, maybe time to start it. Um, <laughs> right. That, but very interesting. Just when you uh, it came up to me, as a preventive oncologist. I said, I've talked to a lot of oncologists working uh, in and around them and patients, but it, I've never heard of a preventive oncologist. And then I looked it up and, and you know, like everything, you can find information on the Internet, and I started to understand it in the context I think of patients, as you described, who had already had cancer and were receiving some form of treatment, or the high-risk group that you were talking about where there's certain options, but it seemed like a pretty sparse toolkit, um, uh, honestly, in terms of what, what there was, and I was thinking there's so much information out there. And I know, um, as a layperson myself, like when I read, you know, a newspaper article, something like this causes that or that, and, and I've been, uh, I know enough about the science to be dangerous, right? I start digging into it, yeah. and I'm trying to understand why, why am I being told this, and, and what does it really mean, and does it impact? Yeah, but you can tell from reading those things that they conflict, mm -hmm. and, and so that's where the epidemiology training is helpful, because then you start looking at the... the the trial design and the different populations and what the limitations are of that study. And so um, it, it's very interesting when you're trying to talk to a patient about what will help them. Mm -hmm. It's different from the headlines that are out there. So that's a great point. What should a patient think about when preventive oncology? Like when should I go, I need a preventive consult or, or I, don't, I don't know what, when do they say that? When's the right time, and what does that person look like? And we talked a little about a little bit, but if, if someone in that situation were listening to this podcast, what should they be saying? And then what, what do they do? What, where should they go and ask, and what questions should they ask? Right. So first of all, they need to be motivated to want to do something preventive, and not everyone is. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when a loved one or just a friend has been diagnosed with cancer, it's a really great teachable moment. And the reason why I say friend is because so much of it is lifestyle that uh, some people don't usually make that connection, but it's a really good time because your, your heartstrings have just been tugged about watching your friend suffer. And so that's a good time. It doesn't have to be a family member. Um, and so actually the cancer prevention movement, we have a very simple, simple questionnaire on our 
website that we call the Know for No quiz. And it's just 10 questions, and each question is a domain of risk. And it's, so it's really easy to throw up at least one flag, but that at least allows us to say this would be um, applicable for you. One of those areas is family history, but some of them are uh, certain medical uh, diagnoses that increase the risk. Um, also, some exposures to certain medications, um, and then a, a lot of them are lifestyle or, or even stress-related. Mm. Interesting. Where could I find that survey? Oh, our website is uh, canpreventmovement.com. So C-A-N prevent. I love it. Prevent. Movement.com. So mm. cancer prevention. Our logo, it's, I, I love it. Uh, it was designed by a uh, someone named Gersh Sagu in, in Canada. And so it says cancer prevention movement, but what is highlighted is can prevent movement. Love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go and take the quiz. I gotta <laughs> okay. know. I gotta know. I'm worried about the stress question. I know, right? and I'm you'll see it. stressing me out. So <laughs> and you'll see how simple it is and you'll say, Oh, I could really help these people <laughs> probably, but <laughs> Oh, it's wonderful. So, you know, uh, before we got on the show together, we were talking a little bit about the work that you've been doing um, with the genomics company, I think Exact uh, Sciences exact and sciences. some of the work there. Can you talk a little bit about what is minimal residual disease? And this is kind of, I think, about like how, uh, where are patients, and I think it's kind of tied to prevention, very closely associated because it's a little bit of how on the spectrum of having your cancer, I'm going to say this really terribly, like how how far on the having recovered, I, I don't like to say the word cure, but how, how minimal is your, like how little of the cancer is left? Um, hopefully none at all. But is that what, what you're trying to work on there in terms of trying to understand where people are in, in their uh, treatment? Yeah. So I guess I'll back up just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so minimal residual disease is a, is a blood test. And um, just to give some background, uh, most of the time when we're diagnosing cancer, it was seen on some kind of imaging test. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the sensitivity, let's say, of um, being able to find a tumor, it, it's usually, it, takes, it usually is about a centimeter mm -hmm. in size, and that's already 100 million cells, believe it or not, in a, in a tumor, and that's a small tumor. Um, so it turns out that tumors shed some of the DNA within it, and so, um, and so do our other cells. And so it's sort of like looking for tumor DNA in the blood. It's like a needle in a lot of other DNA. These are these circulating tumor, CT, I see that now all the CT time. CT is circulating tumor DNA, yes. And so, um, yeah, so it's a blood test to find that little molecular evidence of tumor somewhere that's below our limit to detect on a, on a CAT scan or X-ray. Mm -hmm. so, um, so then to think about where you can apply it, well, that's so many different areas, okay? So you could use that along with maybe protein-based and other technologies to diagnose you know, that, that is one area to mm -hmm. find cancer early. Um, but where I'm focused on is more finding it or seeing what the level is at the time of diagnosis. And because if that is associated, and others have already shown that it is associated with a high risk of recurrence, then maybe we should be treating those individuals 
it's like a prognostic test um, with more uh, either longer or more intense treatment and someone who doesn't have that as high maybe they don't need to be treated the same as everyone else so well I'm just translating that so like all my scans could come back normal but this MRD right might say actually the cancer is still there it's just smaller than this one centimeter much much smaller maybe but it's still there so even though our traditional methods, right, the, the old tech would have said we're in a good place. We're actually not. So we need to That's keep right. going and keep right. pursuing that. And so what I was just describing is right after surgery, mm-hmm. that's often when um, individuals are thinking, do I need chemotherapy or not? So that's one uh, decision point. And then another point would be after you've had your chemotherapy, is it clearing mm-hmm. or is it not? Is there some other treatment we should be doing at that point? Mm-hmm. And then later, after you're done with your treatment, is there a way we can catch it if you were to re- recur? And I hope that doesn't happen, but if one was to recur, is there a way to catch it earlier before a CAT scan mm-hmm. could? So when you say right after surgery, it seems it's almost like, did what we do work at, at all? Did it, did it work? Is there? That's right. Can you use that? Just wondering, can you use that earlier even, like when you're starting, let's say you're starting something like a chemotherapy or targeted therapy or something like that? Can you actually measure before, you know, you wait a month or two months? Because I hear about people who try something and it doesn't work and it takes a month or two months Right. We're still generating this data, but that's what we want to see. So there's now chemotherapies are given before surgery in Mm -hmm. order to shrink tumors before you have the surgery. That's called neoadjuvant therapy. So that's one point is looking right before neoadjuvant therapy or during it. And then at the point of completing that or after surgery and then during adjuvant therapy. So I think in the future we're going to see extended adjuvant therapy or delayed adjuvant therapy because you didn't need it right away or something that uh, some of our European colleagues are saying that's called, uh, or they call it, molecular metastatic therapy. So it's further down the road, but we see molecular evidence of it recurring. Mm -hmm. And so rather than waiting to give metastatic therapy after there's a frank recurrence, because that's what we do now, mm-hmm. can you intervene earlier? Especially if you have um, therapies that are well tolerated, like some of these immunotherapies. Mm-hmm. Where you could give them for longer, or you could delay them. Um, a question, and I, I could be totally off base, but the way I understand it, cancer is actually many clones. So the same cancer is actually lots of different cancers sometimes, right? Or different variations of the same cancer. Does this technology apply similarly, or would it help you say uh, we were able to address this portion of the cancer, but this other portion, which is different, we're going to need to take a different strategy? And and the reason I bring that up is um, I've talked to several patients and physicians where they're looking at actually some really complicated regimens of therapy, right, where they're not trying even one thing or two things. Sometimes it's three or four and and even more of combinations, Mm -hmm. which are really tricky because these are really serious medicines and or procedures, and so there's a lot of risk associated with them. But um, uh, one physician had told me sometimes it's better you just want to throw the kitchen sink, right, at anything that's out there and let's just take care of it. uh, right. That was very important. Th- does this help understand that portion as well as, let's say, whether it's coming back or not? Do you get some signature from this? Yeah. So um, there are 
minimal residual disease in liquid biopsy are sometimes used interchangeably. So if you think about currently what's in use, I should say mostly in use, are these tissue-based genomics platforms that mm -hmm. I know you're familiar with that help uh, oncologists guide their patients to what treatments might work for that, their specific cancer. But that's based on a snapshot in time that when they did a biopsy of their tumor. And it's also for wherever they biopsy that tumor, right? Because there could be another clone in a different part of that tumor. Mm -hmm. And so the promise of the future is to be able to do a liquid biopsy where you can see what's circulating in the blood that hopefully is representative of the different clones of the tumor. And then because different exposures, they had treatment, different treatments over time, mm -hmm. you would expect that to change over time. And so that also makes the liquid biopsy appealing because it's much easier to do a, draw, a blood draw mm -hmm. than to have to do an invasive biopsy well, every you time. You tumor out. And sometimes <laughs> if you can't even see it, what are you biopsying? That's right. right. So uh, we see these two technologies being used together, the minimal residual disease to pick up what we call truncal um, mutations that are just um, expressed at a high level but don't necessarily drive what the tumor. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not to mm, target the medication for that. But They're it's not the genes causing the cancer. They're more correct. like a signature. Like passenger. A, a, a passenger. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. And then the liquid biopsies that are focused on the driver mutations that you can target with the medication. Mm -hmm. So great. We're talking about some really fascinating technology here in terms of just, you know, first of all, prevention, but then prevention of, of your cancer coming back or at least preventing it from getting bad again, or bad, uh, worse, uh, life-threatening. Um, how far out are we? Like, So what is available today right, in what we're talking about? And if I were a patient, um, what could I expect to get? from that and then what is what, when do you think some of the stuff that we're talking about because some of it was a little bit future looking i just want people to have like a clear sure. sense of where sure. where we are on this uh, so there trajectory. are several labs that offer tissue genomics um there's a few labs that offer the liquid biopsy um there's even fewer that are, have the minimum residual disease available now and um, that is actually applied to a subset of tumors. So that is still being so. Some at. tumors, there's an MRD. There is an MRD out there, but it's for a certain subset of the cancers. Which cancers is there MRD? Uh, colorectal cancer okay. is um, that that's has the most data behind it so far. And there are two two labs that offer those tests commercially now, and many, it's kind of a race for <laughs> getting more of them. Um, that being said, none of the, none of the uh, commercial payers are covering it yet. So we're definitely deep in the evidence generation. Got it. And so, I mean, curve. you bring up a, a really, and we were talking about access earlier, and, and, you know, it's one thing to know about something, but you have to be able to do it, otherwise it's not very useful. It's this, you, you, the utility Mm -hmm. essentially. So when you talk about payers and coverage, um, it sounds like, and anytime I think of that, we, we need to understand how well it works first to get that sort of payment coverage. So it sounds like patients, this is something a patient would have to pay for or, or get assistance with in some way at this time, but we're generating that evidence. Is that correct? To try to support the yes. reimbursement? And they are LDT, so med uh, lab developed tests. So that uh, means that Medicare would cover it. 
Got it. So elder, yeah. So if you're on Medicare, it might be a different. You should get covered. You should get covered. But it's the commercial pairs or greater market access that the community is still working on. Got it. That is very helpful and fascinating. And uh, next year is going to be a completely different picture. Yeah, how quickly is this changing? This field, I mean, every, every, <laughs> every honestly, every meeting. time I talk to someone, there's like something new. I'm like, I've never heard it of that. It is amazing. Every meeting and, and more than meetings, even between meetings, you know, you wake up and you open your email and there's a, a new press release. It's amazing how That's quickly amazing. the science is moving. So how can patients, um, so two questions. There's the patient question of as a patient, right, who, or a caregiver of a patient, like how do I keep track of all of this stuff? Right, like how how can I figure it out? Um, and then also as an oncologist, right? How do you stay current? Like, what what are some good practices here of stuff to look for, or, or better yet, what to ignore? I'm guessing is probably as much of the issue as what to try to find. Yeah. So for the oncologist, uh, it's a, <laughs> maybe it's easier because I'm coming from that point of view. Um, there are certain journals that are high impact, good good quality. Uh, great history, and you end up uh, subscribing to their tables of contents, and mm -hmm. that's kind of how you keep up. Um, for a patient, I think that that's where the patient advocacy groups mm -hmm. are so helpful because they can um, synthesize some of that information and help disseminate it in their newsletters to the patients. I've heard so much of that you know, over the course of this show and others. We talk to a lot of patients and every single one of them, I can't think of one who hasn't said that, has gotten enormous value from their patient advocacy organization or from um, technology, social media and other technology channels that they've really been able to leverage in order to stay current or to understand, you know, kind of what their what it is that they should be thinking about doing. And where yeah. They if there are be. any patients listening, uh, I'd like to share that, that it goes bilaterally. So those of us that are working on the science side mm -hmm. um, or in the medical side, I find enormous value from the patient advocacy groups. Um, there's, I mean, because that's who we're serving in the end. So the voice, you can call it voice of customer or whatever, mm -hmm. that is so important. And I know in the clinical trials that I've been working on developing, I'm bringing in advocates that have been gone through training. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so maybe if there's activists out there that want to do that, there are patient advocacy groups that will train you in um, contributing to science. And so they, those individuals, I've seen them in cooperative group meetings, um, in, in study grant um, evaluations, and there's so many ways that you can become active. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I applaud those who do. There's so many patients want to give back in that way. I think it's just so important. Um, so I guess tying everything back to prevention at the at, at the beginning as we talked about disease and all the rest of it, um, um, I love the idea that there may be more that could be done around prevention. It seems like such an obvious thing. I know we've talked about it in many disease areas. I spent some time in cardiometabolic disease. It's a big part there. It should be a big part in cancer yes. and all of them. And so I just have to say I applaud what you're doing there and the fact that that needs to be a thing. I think how can that not be a thing, um, just even having this basic... Uh, I don't know how it cannot be a thing, and I thank you so much for this forum so that maybe others will also think this should be a thing right. because, honestly, the preventive oncology nomer you know, that I, I use, it comes from preventive cardiology. And then the website was canpreventmovement.com, right? Yes. Got it. Okay, I'm going to be looking that up. Uh, first thing Great. and taking my survey. 
So, Eleni, thank you so much for coming on the Target Cancer uh, podcast. I really appreciate it. This has been a fascinating discussion this afternoon with you. Thank you so much. Wonderful. If you or someone you know has advanced cancer and needs to make a treatment decision soon, please click on the link in the description and sign up for the X-Cure's free options and information service.